Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast. Episode 44, Theater of War, Two of Two. In the last episode, we covered the invasion of Estonia by the German army, which of course also meant the eventual withdrawal of the Soviet army out of Estonia. In this episode, the Soviet army regroups and no amount of destruction and death will stop its determined advance to defeat the Nazis. So let's get right into it. In the summer of 1941, thousands of machinery, industrial raw materials, and completed production, means of transport and cattle, as well as people, were taken to Russia. About 25,000 Estonians were evacuated to the Soviet Union. In addition to the fleeing Soviet activists, Among them were many specialists and workers. Some 33,000 recruits were also transported to Russia. Those evacuated were spread all over the Soviet Union. The greatest number of them were located at the Volga River, in the Urals and in western Siberia. Living conditions were harsh, and many of them lacked the necessary clothes and household goods. People were housed with the local population whose accommodation was already overcrowded before. Initially, they all worked in agriculture, but later specialists were employed in military factories, the railways, and the Navy. The recruits were not sent into action, but to construction battalions, which were prison camps by their nature, where people had to survive in extremely hard conditions and were made to build factories or to cut timber. During the winter, almost one-third of those mobilized died of exhaustion. Taking care of those evacuated and mobilized was the task of the Council of People's Commissaries of the Estonian SSR and the Central Committee of the Estonian Communist or the Bolshevik Party. The best they could do was to normalize the living conditions of those evacuated. A noteworthy achievement was the establishment of the state art ensemble of Yaroslav. These assembled the best figures of Estonian culture, who could otherwise have died due to the harsh living conditions. Among the creative people who belonged to the state art ensembles were the composers Eugene Kopp and Gustav Ernesox, the actors Paul Pina and Ants Lauter, the artists Adamson Erik and Ferdi Sannames, the writers Ernie Heer and Deborah Varandi, and many others who played a leading role in post-war Estonian cultural life. The former officials of the Estonian SSR asked for the formation of Estonian units of the Red Army. They referred to the participation of Estonians in the Russian Civil War as well as in the battles of the 22nd Territorial Rifle Corps in the summer of 1941. The latter had been formed by the Estonian army, consisting of 7,000 Estonians. It was sent to fight the Wehrmacht in the region of Prokov, Dino, and Straya Rusa. Within three months, 2,000 men were killed or wounded, and about 4,500 surrendered to the Germans as they did not want to fight for the Soviet power. In September, Estonians were taken from the front to work battalions behind the lines. 
At the end of 1941, the governmental organizations of the Estonian SSR received permission to form national military units behind the lines of the Soviet Union. The formation of the 8th Estonian Rifle Corps actually saved the lives of numerous Estonian men who had been sent to the work battalions. The Corps consisted of 27,000 people, 85 to 90 percent of those were Estonians. The latter included many Estonians who had been living in Soviet Russia. Besides the so-called Soviet Estonians, including the commander of the Corps, Lieutenant General Lembi Pern, several people among the leadership of the Corps had been higher officers in the Estonian Republic, such as the Chief of Staff of the Corps, Jan Lukas. The first battle of the Estonian Corps was fought in December 1942 in January 1943 at Veliki Luki, where they participated in the destruction of the surrounded German garrison. Due to the unprofessional leadership of these units and poor organization of intelligence and artillery support, the Corps suffered huge losses. Three quarters of its members were either killed or wounded. This also includes the 1,200 to 2,000 the data varies according to different sources, who surrendered to the Germans. After the seizure of Veliki Luki, the Corps was withdrawn from the front again for additional formation and training. They returned to the front in the summer 1944 in Estonia. If you are interested in finding more about what life was like for a small family in Estonia during the war, and if you are relatively new to this podcast and haven't listened to the series yet, I would ask you to scroll down the episode list and find the five-part series titled Loss, Renewal, and Reunion. It's the story of a family during the war and how they were forcibly split up, first by the deportation of the father, Edward, to Siberia by the Soviets to serve in a work battalion. His eventual conscription into the Soviet army and his part in the Battle of Likiluki, which was just mentioned in the narrative. The series goes on to describe Soviet rule from the older son Hickey's perspective as a little boy in Estonia during the war, and the eventual chaotic return of the Soviet army, along with a great exodus from Estonia that occurred due to the fear of reprisal against the population with the ever-looming Soviet return. Hakey's description in his memoir are full of very Estonian events, like a wedding and picking mushrooms. Hakey's memories from his youth were remarkably clear, and it has certainly helped me better understand the era, and it's all due to a kind man, Hakey Sova, and his desire to have other people see and know what war is like through the eyes of a babe. As a result of the offensive launched by the Red Army in the middle of January 1944, the remnants of the beaten German forces withdrew to the western bank of the Narva River and Lake Pepsi. The soldiers of the Red Army, who moved closely behind the withdrawing Germans, established their first bases on the Narva River at the beginning of February. As Estonia was a strategically important location, Reinforcements were sent there by the Germans. 
All the Estonian police and eastern battalions, as well as the Estonian Legion, which was reorganized into the 20th Estonian SS Division, were assembled in Estonia. On the last day of January, the Estonian local government announced a general mobilization into the German army. In the situation where Estonia was threatened by a new Soviet occupation, nationalist groups headed by the last Prime Minister of the Estonian Republic, Yuri Uluots, supported the mobilization. In a couple of weeks, 38,000 men had been added to the 20,000 Estonians already serving the German army. Six regiments of border guards were formed from the newly mobilized men. In the middle of February, the battles for Narva started, which lasted until July. The situation was critical from the very beginning. The Red Army left its base located on the south of the town for the railway station of Oevere, thus cutting the railway connection between Narva and Tallinn. At the same time, the troops of the Red Army landed in Merekula. There was a danger that the German forces fighting near Narva would be surrounded. At a critical moment, reinforcements arrived. The troops who had landed were beaten and the attack was stopped. Next, the majority of bases on the western bank of the Narva River were destroyed. An outstanding role in the processes was played by Estonian soldiers. As a reaction to the participation of Estonians in the battles, the Red Army carried out a number of air raids on Estonian towns. On the 6th of March, Narva was completely destroyed. On 7th March, Tapa suffered seriously, and on 9 March, more than 250 planes bombed Tallinn for the whole night. More than 600 people were killed. About one-third of the residential area was destroyed, and 25,000 inhabitants of Tallinn lost their homes. The most damaging consequences were in the historic centers of the town, where the St. Nicholas or Nigulisti church and the Estonian theater were destroyed. On the 25th of March, Tartu was bombed and suffered serious damage. In March and April, the battles for Narva continued. In spite of its predominance, the Red Army was incapable of seizing Narva, but the German-Estonian units also lacked the power to drive the enemy back from the opposite bank of the river. At the end of April, a relative calm began to form in Narva for the next three months. In summer, the situation became extremely unfavorable for the Germans. The Western Allies landed in Normandy. The Red Army launched a massive offensive in Belarus, and Finland was about to leave the war. At Narva, numerous Soviet reinforcement units arrived, while the Germans moved their units from there to more pressing points of the front. They were incapable of holding the former front line near Narva. On the 26th of July, the Red Army seized Narva, but their offensive was stopped at about 20 kilometers from Narva, where in Vajivara, in the so-called Blue Hills, or Sininimaid, the Germans had formed a new front line. Here, the most violent battles ever held on Estonian territory took place, with the greatest number of victims. The attacking Soviet forces suffering huge losses without achieving any success. In August, the Soviet Army Command turned its attention 
to the south of Estonia. The offensive launched in the direction of Pernu was stopped by the Germans at Vaike Imayogi River, but the Wehrmacht was incapable of defending Tartu. On the 25th of August, the Red Army seized Tartu and moved on to the north. At the end of the month, the Red Army was driven back to the opposite bank of the Imayogi River, but the Germans did not manage to recapture Tartu. In these counterattacks, the former members of the Infantry Regiment 200, who had returned from Finland, played an important role. In the middle of September, the situation became critical for the Germans near Riga. If the assault forces of Red Army had reached the Baltic Sea, they would have cut off the German forces fighting in Estonia. In order to avoid this, the Germans decided to abandon Estonia and northern Latvia. The advance of the Red Army in the area of Vika Imayogi, which had started in the middle of September, developed slowly, as keeping open the corridor between Lake Vortsjarv and the sea was vital for the Germans. The units of the Red Army that made an assault in the area of the Sora Imayogi met little opposition. The main attacking force in that front sector was the 8th Estonian Rifle Corps, which was faced by scattered and poorly armed Estonian units of the German army. During the first day, the Corps advanced 30 kilometers and soon cut off the withdrawal route of the Estonian units, which had fought in the battles in Sinemaid. During this period, general confusion reigned in Estonia. The roads were crammed with columns of soldiers and refugees. There was no objective overview of the situation. There was neither a defined front line nor a centralized command, and a small scattered units acting on their own initiatives tried to hinder the rapid advance of the Red Army. In spite of all this, there were nationalist forces trying to restore Estonian independence. In the summer of 1944, the political groupings, which had since been of different opinions, gathered around the National Committee of the Estonian Republic, the Esti Vabariki Rafus Komite. Otto Tief, a former politician in the Independent Republic, who had close contacts with Yuri Uluwatz, was elected as chairman of the committee. Through the mediation of the Estonian diplomats in Sweden, contact was established with the Western countries. The members of the committee hoped that the history of the 24th of February, 1918, would repeat itself. And between the departure of the Germans and arrival of the Red Army, they would manage to declare a restored independent republic and form a provisional government. On the 18th of September, Yuri Uluwatz, the acting president, appointed the government of the Estonian Republic, headed by Otto Tief and consisting of 10 ministers. Colonel Jan Maide was appointed as commander-in-chief of the armed forces. The State Gazette, or Rigi Teatia, was published, and a state of neutrality in the war in progress was announced on the radio. They tried to organize the defense of the capital city, making use of the men who had fought in the Infantry Regiment 200 in Finland, and a military unit organized by Johan Pitka. The plan failed due to the small number of soldiers 
and the fact that the Germans were still in Tallinn. In some places, clashes took place between Estonians and Germans, who blew up industrial complexes. The national flag was raised at the top of Peak Hermann Tower, but nothing more was achieved. On the evening of 21st of September, the government left Tallinn, hoping to escape to Sweden via the western area of Estonia. In actuality, the majority of the members of the government fell in the hands of the Soviet security forces. Yuri Uluots, who was seriously ill at the time, managed to get to Stockholm, where he soon died. On the morning of 22nd September, the tanks of the Red Army entered Tallinn, and by the afternoon, the capital city of Estonia was in the hands of the Soviet soldiers. One after another, Viliandi, Pernu, Paldiski, Hopsalu, and, as a last location on the mainland of Estonia, Moisekula, were seized by the Soviet army. Without much delay, the Red Army also occupied Hiuma and Muhu Islands, as well as the larger parts of Sarama Island, but they were brought to a halt at a fortified position on the Survey Peninsula. The battle in Survey were violent and had heavy casualties. Even before the total occupation of Estonia, the government of the Estonian SSR announced conscription to the Red Army. The 8th Estonian Rifle Corps was complemented with new men and sent to Latvia in 1945, where they participated in the offensive against a German grouping in Koronia. In fierce battles lasting for two weeks with heavy losses, only a little success was achieved. In the winter of 1944-45, a new 20th Estonian Division was formed of the Estonians who had fought for Germany and left Estonia. At the end of January, it helped to hinder the Vistula Order offensive of the Red Army in the sector of Opole. When Germany capitulated, the majority of the Estonians were imprisoned by the Red Army in Czechoslovakia. A small number of Estonian soldiers were able to flee and join either the American or British. In World War II, Estonia suffered huge losses. Narva was completely destroyed and there was huge damage done in Tallinn and Tartu, as well as in several smaller towns. More than half of the pre-war residential houses were destroyed. The percentage of damage in industry was 45%, and in the oil shale mining region, the figure was even bigger. The ports were destroyed and 40% of the railways were damaged. In agriculture, the area of arable land and the number of cattle had decreased considerably, and crop production had dropped. The biggest loss of all was a decrease in population of about 200,000 people, or 25%, which included about 80,000 who had fled to the west, 30,000 soldiers killed in battles, and tens of thousands of victims of terror. In spite of all the suffering and efforts of the Estonians, they were unable to restore the independence of the Estonian Republic. With the advance of the Red Army into Estonia, we say goodbye and watch the retreat of Army Group North. The story of Army Group North remains interesting. In late summer and fall of 1944, Army Group Center was being decimated by the Soviet Army, 
and the commander of Army Group North, General Field Marshal Ferdinand Schroner, looked to withdraw from the region so that they wouldn't lose contact with the remnants of Army Group Center. But Hitler declined to allow Army Group North's retreat to the south out of Latvia. Instead, Army Group North retreated to the southwest of Riga and up into the Courland Peninsula, where they were eventually cut off from their German comrades when the Soviet advance reached Klaipeda and the Baltic coast. At this point, Army Group North was renamed Army Group Courland. Hitler's plan was to have this small army group used as a fortress, in an attempt to have a relatively small number of German troops tie down a large number of Soviet troops, which it did, but not nearly enough, as the advance towards Germany still proceeded. The Soviet Union had enough troops to handle both tasks at this point in the war. The battle raged in the Corland pocket until the end of the war. Army Group Corland surrendered to the Soviet Army on May 8th, one day later than the surrender of the German command in Berlin. On the same day, prisoners started to be collected. 135,000 men surrendered from Army Group Corland. In all, about 180,000 Germans were captured in the Baltic states as a whole. While driving my teenage son to high school every day, I've recently listened to the audible version of Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I've often heard it referred to as one of the great works that one should read to try and understand the often absolute absurdity of the Soviet state and, and its prison or camp system, how they called it. While Solzhenitsyn picks apart this entire gulag system, I didn't expect it to be so wonderfully written and engaging as it turned out to be. He methodically dissects the internal organs of the police state, while, of course, the subject matter is dark. Somehow Solzhenitsyn is able to comfortably explain the prison realm. With the war coming to an end in Estonia, I thought it would be a good time to bring up the book Gulag Archipelago, since the Gulag system is where the majority of these 180,000 German men that were captured in the Baltic states ended up. While that sounds like a lot, this continued to happen in the newly captured areas all along the Eastern Front not only captured Germans, but anyone that might have had contact with the West would be viewed suspiciously. Or if you happen to criticize Stalin in a personal correspondence with a friend, which is how Solzhenitsyn ended up in prison. Figures compiled and released by Soviet historians in 1989 showed that a total of 10 million people were sent to the camps. In the period from 1934 to 1947, the true figures remain unknown. Solzhenitsyn met and befriended Arnold Susi, the former Minister of Education of Estonia under the government of Otto Tief at the infamous Lubyanka prison near Moscow. In the book Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn talks very favorably of Susi and his love for his little country of Estonia and its constitution. Solzhenitsyn stayed at the home of Arnold Susi while writing Gulag Archipelago, and entrusted the documents to Arnold Susi's daughter, Heli, for safekeeping. Solzhenitsyn was confident about the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union. He was quoted as saying, Gulag was destined to affect the course of history. I was sure of it.
He also mused, you Bolsheviks are finished. There are no two ways about it. Did his book help bring about the demise of the Soviet Union? If you have an opinion and would like to share it, you can email me at sparsleyw at gmail.com. It is hard to believe that a single book could have such a large influence on history. But once the truth was laid bare for everyone to examine, how could it not? When we return, Estonia is firmly in the Soviet Union. Throughout Estonia, poor farmers have been working their entire lives to build a decent level of comfort and security for their families. In the Soviet Union of the 1930s, an entire class of people called the Kulaks were persecuted. The term Kulak refers to a peasant farmer that was able to reach a somewhat comfortable existence. These were some of the people that had the most to lose during the collectivization of land, and they were the ones that fought against it the most. With the Soviet return, the term Kulak will be used to slander and discredit Estonian peasants as well. That's all there is for now. So until next time, Nagamiseni. <laughs>